Now we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 8. We've seen the life of Noah, the lifestyle that he lived in comparison to the whole world around him, that the world in his time period uh, was evil. All the thoughts, all the intents of man was evil continually. We know that through Scripture, the world was filled with violence. It was filled with sexual sin. It was filled with demonic oppression and possession. It was a nasty, nasty place to live. But we're able to see through Noah that him and his family, they were still able to be righteous in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And it's a great reminder to us. It's a great picture for us that we can still be righteous in the day and age that we're living in right now. That we simply cannot excuse living in an unholy manner or living in an unbiblical manner to look at everyone else around me. Because those excuses simply don't work with God. Those excuses don't work with the Bible that we're given with and blessed with having here in front of us. We know that through Noah's life, he was asked to build a giant boat. There were no boats at that time. We know that Noah, he was preaching righteousness and he was preaching that there was going to be a rain and a flood. There is no rain at that time. There are no floodings that had ever happened at that time. So Noah's been asked to do a whole lot for the Lord. He's been asked to take a lot of steps of faith for the Lord. And as we looked at chapter 6 and chapter 7, man, he's been owning it. In Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us that he was a preacher of righteousness. That some Bible scholars say Noah, even before he began building the ark, first he built a pulpit and he would be there preaching the gospel to everyone around him. Again, another great picture, great reminder for us that if we've been praying for unsafe friends or family members or if we've been praying for prodigals, hey, to not give up, to not lose hope. We know that Noah, it took him anywhere between 75 to 120 years to build this giant massive boat. And he's preaching righteousness through it all. Finally, God calls him and his family to come inside the boat. Again, signifying to us that when we're about to go through a trial, the Lord just doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. But God is there in the midst of us. He's there in the place of protection. He's there in the place of safety in the midst of the trial and in the midst of the storm. Then the whole world gets covered with water. We know that the world itself is sort of broken and cracked open and water's rushing from the ground itself. And then we looked at, through the first six, seven chapters of Genesis, we looked at the idea of a a water canopy or a vapor canopy around the earth that gave it this perfect temperature all year round, everywhere throughout the globe. And that's how we get the water just pouring down from heaven, being able to cover the tallest mountain, whatever that was at the time. Again, we don't know if Mount Everest existed before or because of the seismic activity, all the earthquakes, all the craziness, that's when Mount Everest was created. But we're here, chapter 8, verse 1. We'll park here and look at this for a little bit. It tells us, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. Depending where you're at, this may be a blessing, or it may be a very scary thought. But the reality is that God cannot forget. God cannot forget. If you would forget things, He wouldn't be God, right? 
Because God, he didn't set a reminder on his phone that it popped up a couple months, a couple days afterwards that he forgot about Noah and his family or anything of that sort. But this is a non-literal picture of God and human terms, which makes God's word easier for us to understand. That's all that this is telling us. But there's many of us, and we go through seasons in our lives where we feel as if God, he truly has forgotten about us. Sometimes we go through a trial, a tribulation, a rough season, and we say, God, where are you? Have you forgotten about me, right? Come in Houston, is anybody there? Is anybody there? Is anybody looking after me? And if you're there in this place, just know that you are in good company. There are many amazing godly men and women throughout Scripture that had felt as if God had forgotten about them or even that God had forsaken them. If you read throughout the Psalms, David many times is in that place. Through the book of Job, Job is there in the midst of his trial. Paul, in the midst of many shipwrecks, in the midst of much turmoil, he's at that place. Even Jesus Christ himself on the cross, he asks, Man, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Father, why have you forsaken me? So for us, if you're there and you're in the midst of a trial and you say, Man, has God completely forgotten about me? Does he not see all the pain I'm going through, all the craziness, all the madness? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 10. And here's a great reminder that the Lord, not only has he not forgotten about us, but he's always paying attention to us. Matthew chapter 10. We'll look at verse 26 through 31. And Jesus is here and he tells us, Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall on the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Jesus, he's here and he's telling us, hey, I know when every single sparrow passes away or gets hit by a car or dies or gets eaten by something else. I know every time a sparrow, which is worth half a cent, right? Don't know what inflation would be today, how much a sparrow goes for, but God, he knows every single sparrow when it passes away, when it's born. So how much more is God looking at you and seeing the state you're in, seeing the trials that you may be in, the seasons you may be in, and he's paying attention. The second thing that he tells us there is he knows the amount of hairs on our head. He counts them all. He knows us that intimately. Again, a picture that when you love someone, you run your fingers through their hair, you're looking at them, you're caring about them, and the Lord cares about us. If you're in the midst of the trial, He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't just left you out on a little boat, on a little dinghy, just struggling for your life. He is paying attention to you, and as we'll look on later through the book of Daniel, as we're reminded here with Noah, He's with you in the storm. He's there with you in the storm. But the question for us is, are we trusting our own will or are we trusting God's will through the storm? That if we believe he's all powerful, he's all knowing, he's all loving and he's a perfect dad. Do we believe that, man, Lord, whatever you say, I trust you. I believe in you. 
And sometimes you see this in kids. Parents will like sort of let their kids go through the aisle, not for a long time, but sort of like seeing them how far they'll go. And there's some kids that, oof, they don't care, right? They'll just be hanging out. They'll go through the whole store. They'll do whatever they want because of the level of trust that they have. Maybe too much trust, right? And there's some other kids that the moment the parent turns the corner, they're freaking out, right? And then they're crying and stranger dangers going on all over in their minds. And for us, do we trust the Lord? Are we trusting in God even through the storm? And there's another important fact for us is sometimes we're going through difficulties in life, but they are not trials allowed by God to show his glory in our life. Instead, they're consequences for our sin and poor decision making. And that's another thing that we have to pray about, that in the midst of a bad time, a bad season, we have to say, Lord, am I in a trial that you're going to show yourself strong on my behalf? Lord, am I in a trial that you're going to reveal your glory? Lord, am I in a trial that now I'm going to be an example to other people that even though you can get faced with this difficulty or that difficulty, we can still be strong in the Lord, we can still be calm, we can still be at peace? Or Lord, am I reaping what I've sown? Have I simply been going after my own lusts, my own desires, and now I'm faced with the consequences of my decisions And I'm calling it a trial. It's not a trial, family. That is just simply the consequences to our sin. And all throughout the Bible, don't know how many of you guys are farmers, but there's the whole idea of sowing and reaping. And whatever seed we put in the ground, it grows into a plant or a tree or a bush or a vine. And it lets out fruit that lets out dozens and hundreds of more seeds. So what are we sowing into? There's a difference there. We need to continue to pray, Lord, what, what is this that I'm being faced with? Is this a trial or am I tasting the fruit of my sin and of my flesh? It's always a great prayer to pray. But know the Lord, he's still with you. Even if you're in the sin, we know that even with the prodigal son and the father, you see the father running to the prodigal son when he returns. So if you're there and you're convicted saying, there's no doubt I'm tasting the fruit of my flesh and of my poor decision making, and run to the father. Make that 180, seek forgiveness, seek restoration with God, and he's right there with you, and he's never left you. We continue through Genesis chapter 8. Now we look at verses 2 through verse 5. It reads, Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water reduced steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. And the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So here what we see is God basically turns off the water. He turns off the water faucets coming through the deep from the earth itself, and he closes the floodgates of the sky. Again, a reminder to us of the water vapor canopy that once surrounded the planet that gave a perfect greenhouse effect. That's why everything was lush and green and beautiful. Now, as a result of all the madness that has happened on the planet, we're going to see at the end of chapter 8, we're going to see the four seasons. We're going to see wind appears in verse 1. It's a result of heat and cold and the climate and all the change. Before, it was just simply perfect all around the planet. 
The next thing we can look at is that the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. So some practical things and then we'll look at the spiritual application. Mount Ararat is a mountain which is 16,854 feet tall and it's located in Turkey. And there's been many claims of people finding the ark all throughout the last couple of decades. Every couple of years somebody finds the ark. Some people have found it in Iran. Some people have found it in Turkey. Uh, there's one story of a guy, he has a chunk of old wood and he's telling everybody it's a piece of the ark. I believe CBS made like a huge news story on it. Later on, he says there's a piece of wood he found in his backyard, right? So people have found the ark in all sorts of different places. But there are some pretty interesting satellite photos from the 1940s and 50s. There's some great historians, Josephus and other men, that say it is on Mount Ararat at 15,000 feet. So there's some practical things there. If you look at answers in Genesis, they do a lot of study, both biblically and scientifically, linking the two things. And the thing for us to remember here is it says the plural, the mountains, plural, of Ararat. And these mountains of Ararat, it's a mountain range that is really a bunch of dormant volcanoes, the last of which erupted on July 2nd, 1840. So if you have a volcano that's been constantly erupting on and off for the last few thousands of years, it's going to look drastically different than that of Noah's day. So that's if you're into the science aspect of it. If you're going to commission a mission to go to Turkey and find the ark, I'll be praying for you. That'll be pretty cool. Some people say they've found it. Some people say they haven't. It shouldn't shake our faith either way. Why do we believe that the ark existed and it's on Mount Ararat? Because that's what the Bible says. That's the reason why we believe it. Nobody's found the cross. We don't know if the tomb that we go to is really the real tomb. Nobody's found lots of things within the Bible. But we're blessed. The Lord, he gives us a lot of awesome historic things within archaeology. Another great plug for going to Israel and being on the Israel trip. You see a lot of history, archaeology, and science showing, hey, the Bible, what it says, it's true and it's legit even when people say that it's not. Spiritually for us, the important thing for us to focus in on is in verse 4, it tells us that the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The ark didn't crash against the mountains of Ararat, it didn't flip over on the mountains of Ararat, it didn't break in half on the mountains of Ararat, it simply rested. And it's a great analogy for us that when we are going through trials, we should be at peace. And we should simply be at rest. And again, that's when we're going to show the world that there's a difference within us. When we're not becoming an alcoholic or we turn to drugs or we turn to anything else when we're faced with a trial. When we're able to have the true peace and joy, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, no matter what trial we're faced with. Let's turn to Luke chapter 6. And Jesus, he touches on the same idea of being able to withstand the storm and be at peace. Luke chapter 6. We'll read verse 46. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against the house and he could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard 
and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Family, our foundation first and foremost needs to be on Jesus Christ. How is that practically shown? When we do what the Bible says to do. When we do what Jesus says to do. We were blessed last week, Pastor Bill, he touched on this. But this is how we are a wise man or a wise woman. This is how we get the blessings of God. It's not just simply hearing the word of God. It's not simply just reading the word of God, but it's acting on it. It's doing it. It's living it. This is now when you're able to withstand the storms. Because if we just read the Bible, if we just hear the Bible, but we don't act on it, it says we have no foundation. But our house, our lives, our homes, they will be crushed and destroyed with any storm that comes. And we live in a day and age where there's Bible scripture in a lot of places. Even though it's hated, I went to a Mexican restaurant a couple of weeks ago with a couple of the young adults. And there's Bible scriptures all over the place. They got these little cute little tiles and they got the Lord's Prayer and a bunch of different tiles. But they're serving tequila and margaritas and all sorts of things in the same restaurant, right? There's different athletes and different fighters and they'll have Philippians 4.13 tattooed on their chest. And yeah, the Lord is going to give me the power to knock this guy out. No, it's not what it means at all, right? What does Philippians 4.13 mean? It says that you can be in any state of life and still be content and you can do all things. Doesn't mean that now you can bench press 500 pounds because you have it tattooed on you. So for us, may we know the scripture and may we live it. May we actually be obedient to the Bible because it's not enough to just talk about it or read it or hear it. We need to live it if you want God's blessings. That's the only way that you're going to get God's blessings. That's the only way you're going to be able to withstand trials and storms just like Noah, just like this wise man. We can withstand the storm. And if we're here and you're a Christian, you're going to heaven, you should be calm, cool, and collected. No matter the trial, no matter the storm, because you know the one who wrote the book and you've read the end of the book. And in the end, man, we win. In the end, we make it. In the end, we're in heaven for all of eternity. But we go back to Genesis chapter 8, and now we'll look at verse 6 through 12. Verse 6 reads, Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah had opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. And then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark. For the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and he took her and he brought her into the ark to himself. And so he waited yet another seven days and again he set out the dove from the ark. And the dove came to him towards evening and behold in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So no one knew that the water was abated from the earth. And then he waited yet another seven days and he set out the dove but she did not return to him again. Verses 6 through 12 is showing us Noah's test to see if God wanted them to get out of the boat yet. It was Noah's test to see if there was dry land anywhere to land upon. And there's a couple of things for us to look at here. 
First and foremost, it's wise for us to wait upon the Lord and allow time and opportunity for Him to move and show us if something is truly His will or not. Noah will, if you count up all the days, they've been on the boat once they get off for 370 days. It's a lot of days on a boat, right? I don't know what's the longest cruise you've been on. Recently, I saw that there's cruises that last for a whole month. I don't know if I could take that or if I get cabin fever. But that's a long time to be on a boat that has shows, buffets, room service, and all sorts of great things, right? But now imagine being on a boat that you're not given an itinerary. You're not given a captain's log. You're not given a schedule. But it's just, hey, get on the boat, and you just got to wait. And you got to wait and wait and wait and wait. Noah and his family, you don't see them jumping off the boat. You don't see them tearing down the door. You don't see them at each other's throats. They are continually waiting on the Lord. Many people look at Noah in this few verses. Many people look at Gideon and the different tests, asking God to make sure if something is his will. And they call it a lack of faith. I believe that's really prideful and short-sighted. You see, when we do it with a heart of obedience and humility, I believe the Lord is so blessed that we would want to be careful to declare, thus saith the Lord. We got to be real careful whenever we say something is without a shadow of a doubt from the Lord. Because none of us are God's man or woman of the hour. We can't just get an idea all of a sudden and say, thus saith God, and this is God, and this is God. Because people change their minds a whole lot. And you will soon see in some people's lives, God is constantly changing his mind. God is constantly telling them one thing and then the other and then another. And we know God doesn't change. But he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's wise for us as we see Noah, as we see Gideon, that when the Lord is asking of us to do something, that we wait upon him. And we give him time and opportunity to speak back to us. Again, throughout the New Testament, Jesus says it's a good thing when we ask our Father. He says it's a great thing when we ask our Father for the Holy Spirit and for good gifts because He wants to give us those things. But so often we don't ask, we just say, right? And usually, normally, God's will is attached to my will and whatever I desire. And we'll see later on how that doesn't always match up. Finally, one thing to see here is usually the most difficult thing The thing that takes the greatest amount of faith is waiting on the Lord. That's what takes the most amount of faith is waiting on the Lord. It's not necessarily making that big decision, but it's waiting on the Lord, saying, Hey, Lord, is this what you really want from me? If not, it wouldn't be all throughout Scripture. The Lord telling people, Hey, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. If that wasn't that big of a deal, we wouldn't find it all throughout Scripture. Now we look at verses 13 through 19. It reads, Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. And then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. And then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, and bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth. 
and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. And every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. In verses 13 through 19, we can see now God commands Noah, go out of the ark and bring out with them every living creature. Again, they've been on the boat for 370 days. I don't know if you've ever driven to a place. The first time you ever drive to a place, it's the longest, right? It feels like forever because you don't know when the destination is. You don't know what the roadmaps look like. You don't know, hey, this lamppost, yeah, after this lamppost, we're almost there. So always the first time around, it takes forever. But again, imagine being 370 days on a boat, not being told that it's going to be 370 days, right? It's a long three-hour tour for Noah and his family here on this boat. But yet they're continually waiting on the Lord. They don't rest on Mount Ararat and jump out of the boat. They don't see the tops of the other mountains and jump out of the boat right away. They don't even, once all the land is dry, jump out of the boat. Again, the calmness and peace that we should have in trials and in storms and in waiting upon the Lord. Next, let's turn to the book of Daniel chapter 3. And we'll see three more gentlemen that were more than willing to wait on the Lord in the midst of their trial. Daniel chapter 3. Here we see... Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel had deciphered a crazy dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had that had this statue that was made out of gold and different metals, rocks and metal. And the king takes this dream and Daniel tells him, hey, you're a part of this kingdom. Then there's going to be another kingdom, another kingdom, another kingdom. Finally, a rock that is not made from human hands will come and destroy all the kingdoms showing us the different kingdoms that will rule the world, and then Jesus Christ coming after the rapture and destroying everything and settling his own kingdom. But Nebuchadnezzar, he takes that and he says, no, my kingdom's going to last forever. So what he does is he takes the same statue that he dreamt up and he makes a golden image of it. And then he gets some bad counsel from his friends, from the bad politicians in the days of Babylon. And he says, everyone has to worship this one idol. And if you don't worship it, you have to be put to death. And it's a good reminder for us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were not the only Hebrews in Babylon at this time. There were tons of Israelites that had been taken from Israel and were in the midst of Babylon. But yet, they blow the trumpet, they play the music, and every single person bows down except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their own countrymen, their own brothers, their own family, they bow down to the idol, but they're unwilling to do so. Again, another reminder to us, whether it's us and our family alone like Noah, or if it's just us and two of our friends like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we have no excuse to conform to the things of this world. We should be living for heaven, not living for this earth. We sung it, right? We want to be sons and daughters of God. But can we be sons and daughters if we're always fighting and bickering against him and against the other sons and daughters? Be a pretty messed up family. And the church of Christ, the family of Christ, it's dysfunctional. But we are supposed to be a chaste bride. We're supposed to be ready that when he returns, we're not trying to clean ourselves up, right? Have you ever seen a wedding where the bride comes down the aisle and... Her hair's all messed up, right? And she has ketchup and dirt all over her dress. And give me a couple minutes. I got to get ready, right? 
No, she's ready. The wedding may start a little later, but she's going to be ready. And she's going to be perfect without a spot or blemish. That's how we're supposed to be when Jesus returns. But in Daniel chapter 3, verse 26, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've been thrown into a fiery furnace that's so hot it kills all the military men that threw them in the furnace. We can begin in verse 24. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded, and he stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men loose and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. And he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. You see family Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't freaking out when they got thrown into the fire. You didn't see them stop, drop, and rolling in the midst of the fiery furnace. You didn't see them trying to claw their way out or run out of the trial. They were at peace. Because again, when we go through trials, Jesus is right there with us. He's right there with us. It's a good reminder for us. So just like Noah didn't run out of the boat, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't run out of the fiery furnace we as believers when we're in the midst of the trial know that that might be the closest you will ever be in this physical form to Jesus we can go back to Genesis chapter 8 we'll continue to look at this it's important to know Robert Jameson he tells us it's been two months since the ark stopped and rested on Mount Ararat and yet Noah never stirred from his appointed home till he had received the express permission of God. We should watch the leading of providence to direct us in every step of the journey of life. Family, are we constantly asking, Lord, what's your will in my life? Lord, what's your will in my life right now? Whether you're 12 or 22 or 42 or 102. When was the last time you asked God, what is your will for my life today? In this class, at my job, with my family, Lord, what is your desire for my life? It's important to ask that. We'll see later on why. But we see throughout Scripture that when God's people are going through trials and storms, again, there's no rush to get out, but peaceful waiting on God in the midst of the trial, the storm, or even the fiery furnace. Now we look at verses 20. Through 22. It tells us, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took of every clean animal and every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Family, a good question for us is what's the first thing you do when you get out of a trial or when you get out of a storm? What's the first thing you do? Do you pour yourself a nice glass of whiskey? Do you go and partake of your favorite meal? 
Do you go grab a pint of Ben and Jerry's or grab your favorite guilty pleasure? Or do you come to the Lord and worship him? Do you come to God and thank him for all of his mercy and his grace for getting us through the storm? You see, the first thing Noah did the moment he got out of the ark, it wasn't kiss the ground, it wasn't have a party, it was to have a burnt offering of sacrifice to God, thanking him and worshiping him. So some of us may be asking, what in the world can I offer to the Lord in sacrifice? I don't think I can handle killing an animal and sacrificing, all right? Do you really expect me to burn up some type of animal in my backyard? No, no, not at all, right? Not even in Miami, not even a little bit. But let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And we can see New Testament-wise the types of sacrifices that we should be offering to the Lord continually. And verse 15 and 16, it reads, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Family, we should be continually offering up praises to God. Verbally giving thanks to his name. Again, how were we in worship? Is, is worship important to you? Is coming to church on time important to you? Or is worship simply, hey, that's filler time for us to get there on time for the teaching, right? It's sort of the prelims before the main event of the fight. Or maybe you look at it, it's sort of like the movies. It's showing the different movies before you get to the main movie. Or is worship one of the most important things to you on a Sunday or on a Wednesday? Here in Hebrews, we're told this is what we should be doing continually is offering up praises to God. Again, what's the fruit of our lips? Is it God's name in vain all the time? Or are we thanking God? Has your family ever heard you thank the Lord out loud? Have your friends, have your coworkers ever heard you offering up praises to God, verbally giving thanks to his name? And maybe we're here and we come to worship and we're like a statue, right? We don't move, our lips don't move, our body doesn't move, and we're just a warm body sitting on the chair. But how do we act when we're watching our favorite sports team and they just come from behind and win in the last second, right? How are we at our favorite concert with our favorite artists? Are we that same statue that doesn't move, right? How are we with our favorite hobby, our favorite food, a restaurant that we just left an amazing five-star review for, right? How are we? And again, it's going to show us where the treasures of our heart are. Because whatever is flowing out of our mouth, that's what's going to show really what's important to us. If it's the Lord, if it's our family, if it's our flesh, if it's sin, whatever is coming out continually from our mouth, it's going to show what we're grateful for and thankful for. The second part in Hebrews 13 verse 16 is that we should not neglect to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Family, are we doing good to one another? Are we sharing with one another? Or is life simply about me, myself, and I? How are you going to please me? How are you going to help me? How are you going to pay for my meal? What did you get me for Christmas? What did you get me for my birthday, right? We get to church and what do they have to offer me? Is our life about giving and sharing to others? Because again, if we're Christians, we're saying my life is to be modeled after Christ. 
And we see all throughout the Gospels, it was in no way, shape, or form about serving Christ. His whole life was about serving others, giving to others, being the one that's doing all the giving and not very much of the receiving. This is what our life should look like. And we're told here that when we sacrifice things like this, God will be pleased, right? Many of us say when we get to heaven, what is it that you want to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant, right? Many, how, anybody want to hear that when you get to heaven? Lots of us. But we need to live that. We need to live that. You don't just get a well done for not doing anything, right? Hopefully you don't do that. But we know God, he's not going to do that. He's not going to say, hey, well done, even though you didn't do anything on earth. Yeah, good job, good job, man. You made it here. No, we need to do it. We need to live it if we truly want that. Next, we can turn to Romans chapter 12, another important part of our sacrifice to the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it tells us, Therefore, I urge you, or I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable or well-pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. A better translation would be your rational. The only thing that makes sense in the view of God's mercy to us is that we would offer our lives as a living and holy sacrifice, focusing on being well-pleasing to God. Family, if we're here and we're saying we're going to heaven when we die, I'm not going to hell when I die, then our entire life should be wrapped up in being a sacrifice for the one who sacrificed everything for us. That's the bottom line. We can't say, hey, Jesus, I want you to sacrifice everything, and I sacrifice nothing, right? Do you want to enter a marriage like that or a business like that? Hey, let's be business partners. You give me 100% of your business and I'll give you nothing. Let's shake on it. Let's sign the paperwork. No, there's no way. You're crazy, right? But this is what so often we do to the Lord. Jesus, I love you. I'm so grateful that you lived the perfect life, that you stepped down from heaven, that you were beaten and bruised, and that you died and resurrected for me. But I want to stay in my sin. I want to stay in my comfort. I don't want to cause any waves. I got to stay completely comfortable. Doesn't sound like a great deal, right? Doesn't sound like a great benefit to him. And in his long suffering and his grace and his mercy, and he's still waiting on us. He's still saying, hey, will you come and live this life like I lived for you? And again, it all has to start with viewing the mercies of God. How great do we see God's mercy to us? How great do we see our sin towards God? Because depending how big or little we see that, then we think, eh, I don't really need salvation that much. I don't really need Jesus' mercy that much because I'm like an amazing person. So it's just like I'm a really good cake and he just adds a little icing on top of me, right? But when you see yourself as a wretched sinner, the miry clay, my best righteousness is nothing but filthy rags, then it's Jesus 100%. And I just simply said, yes, and can I spend time with you? Can I be that servant? Can I be that slave in your home? Let's look at Luke chapter 9. It's a great focus after we see that we should be a living sacrifice for God. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. This is Jesus speaking again, and he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, right? If anybody wants to go to heaven, if anyone wants to be my disciple, if anyone doesn't want to be in hell for all of eternity, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Family, our lives, if we're saying that we're a Christian, need to be completely wrapped up in, Lord, how can I be a blessing to you today? Jesus, how can I be a blessing to you today? What in my life needs to change? What do I need to cut off? What do I need to start doing that you would be well pleased with? That would be acceptable in your sight. This is the life that we should be living as believers. Because again, this is the life that Jesus lived for us. He sacrificed everything. He gave his own life for us. And if we're honest, this convicts me like crazy. This convicts, especially us in America, this should be so convicting to us. Because so often our life or our Christianity is hand in hand with our comfort, right? We shouldn't be called Christians. We should be called comfortites, right? The AC's off or I got to drive a little bit further. I got to walk a little bit further. There's no cafe today. The usher looked at me wrong. My parking spot's not here. You're sitting in my chair. And we just, we get so mad. We get so bothered. The missions team, when they came back, they, were, they said that they were humbled because while they're in the midst of the jungle in Costa Rica, there's some ladies there from the church and they're cooking their meals. They're preparing the food for them as the missionaries. But what they didn't realize is that these ladies were walking miles in the jungle at four in the morning to get there early enough to make their breakfast. And again, across the world, there's no churches like this because they'd be put to death if they'd go to a church like this. But for us, it's too difficult to serve the Lord. It's too difficult. It's not comfortable enough. Family, may we remember there's no sacrifice that's being sacrificed that's being comfortable, right? I've never been to a burnt offering, sacrifice, or ceremony or anything like that. I think the closest thing that we have is barbecues, right? It's the closest thing we have to it. I don't think that steak is sitting there saying, oh, this is so comfortable here on this grill at 500 degrees or 600 degrees. It's painful. It's searing. And that's what should be happening to our flesh, to our own desires that we're saying. It's not my life above Christ's, but because Jesus Christ gave his whole life for me, I'm going to give my whole life for him. And now it's not about my personal freedoms. It's not about my desires or my dreams. It's all about, Lord, what would you have me to do? Self-preservation or dream preservation or personal desire preservation is really dangerous for a Christian. So dangerous when we're just wrapped up in what I desire, what my emotions, what my feelings want and desire. We are to daily ask and live out the Lord's Prayer, right? One of the first verses that we memorize and we recite it. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we're honest, what we say is, Jesus, may your will be done in heaven as mine is on earth, right? Lord, I want you to give me this girl. I want you to give me this job. I want you to give me this car. I want you to give me this health. I want you to give me these days off. That's how we treat the Lord. But we need to be like Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Family, when was the last time we were real with God and we said, okay, God, I'm going to put what I want on hold Lord, what do you want? What do you desire? 
And some people think that's just being crazy religious. Some people think that's no room for freedom, that that's harmful. But whenever you love someone, there's sacrifice involved in it. In any marriage, there's a lot of sacrifice involved in it. In any relationship with parents and kids, if you have kids here, you know there's a whole lot of sacrifice involved in it. And we're more than free doing it. We love to do it. But with the Lord, it's not the same. And the big question mark is, where is our love for God? Where is our gratitude for God? Because when someone has sacrificed for us, man, of course I'll be there for you. You're in the hospital after you did all these things for me, man. I'm going to be there. I'm going to visit you. I'm going to love on you. Whatever you need. But has Christ not done enough, family? Has he not done enough that he deserves our everything? And what's the blessing? When we give him everything, then later on it says, man, your dreams, your desires, I want to give you those things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. It's not that the Lord wants you to live in a hut in the back of the church and have nothing, right? Except a loincloth and your little barbecue in front of you. That's not the Lord's desire for you. But there's blessings all throughout Scripture, but we just have to live biblically. We can't live in constant sin or constant denial in God or only coming to God when we want something and expect His blessings. We're going to be really frustrated with the lives that we're living, and it's not going to be on the Lord. But family, let us continually be praising God and giving Him thanks for all that He has done for us. Let us love one another and do good and be giving to one another. Let us focus on how much God has loved us and how kind and gentle and merciful He's been to us in spite of our sins. And may that motivate us. May that motivate us to give our whole lives to Him, to be set apart from this world, to serve the Lord in everything we do, instead of living just like the world to serve ourselves and everything we do. That word holy, it means to be set apart. To be set apart. And I always think of this analogy. Growing up, we used to use toothbrushes to clean the bathrooms to get like in the real corners, right? And to get under things. But it wasn't any toothbrush that you would use, right? You had a specific toothbrush for cleaning the bathroom. Hopefully you did. I know I did, right? And that toothbrush was set apart for the bathroom or that toothbrush was set apart for the car cleaning or that toothbrush was set apart for the shoe cleaning it wasn't just the same toothbrush used for everything right it wasn't oh there's dad's toothbrush yeah that's good enough right and just go go yeah i just put this right back here look at that super convenient it has a little holder and everything right no it's set apart i have one toothbrush for one purpose and i have one toothbrush for a completely different purpose that's how our lives need to be family we're not supposed to be like every other toothbrush out there. We need to be set apart only for the master's use. That's what we're supposed to be like. Set apart. We're supposed to be different. Not be obnoxious. Not be rude. Not be short. We're supposed to be loving and gracious and merciful. But we're supposed to be righteous and holy all at the same time. Finally, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 8. Again, we see in verse 21 that the Lord smelled the soothing aroma of Noah's sacrifice right after getting out of the ark. I was listening to one teaching, and it's true. This sacrifice was a big step of faith for Noah. It wasn't to Noah's benefit or blessing to kill a bunch of the animals that he could eat or that were about to repopulate the earth. It was a step of faith. It was, in a sense, harmful to his own desires and to his own flesh. Just like whenever we sacrifice something to the Lord, it's not going to feel great. 
It's not going to feel fantastic, right? When you have to wake up and you're at church at 8 or, again, even for some pastors, it's great and it's easy to study. For me, it takes work. Sometimes it's waking up early in the morning to start studying. It doesn't feel great. Oh, yes, I get to wake up super early today, right? And uh, I went to bed super late. But, yeah, yeah, it feels awesome. No, man, it hurts sometimes. But when it's for the Lord, there's no better place to be. It's a sweet smelling, it's a soothing aroma to the Lord. And then God, he gives this promise that he says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. What God is saying here is I will never again destroy the earth via flood or via water. Later on, we'll look at 2 Peter next time we're together. And he says, hey, there's a day reserved in heaven that the planet Earth will be consumed with fire. And that God, he's going to destroy it again after Jesus comes and takes his bride. And he's going to destroy this planet with fire. Then in verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and night and day shall not cease. Again, very interesting. It's the first time we see the words summer and winter throughout all scripture. Again, signifying that the world went under a ginormous change. That perfect climate, that perfect greenhouse was broken. And now we get our four seasons. We get wind. We get hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis and all the great things that we get today. Uh, But family, may we be that sacrifice to the Lord. May we be that believer that in the midst of a trial, man, I'm cool, calm, and collected. Because we can be like Job, right? Job, he's in the midst of a trial, and he says, even if he would slay me, I will still trust in him. I will still trust in him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, before they're thrown into the fire, they tell King Nebuchadnezzar, they say, our Lord is able to save us, but if not, we will still not bow down and worship that. And that's the way we need to live is it doesn't matter if me making a stand for Christ is more beneficial to me or my wallet or my health or to my feelings. It doesn't matter because after all that Christ has done for me, I'm not going to move from here. This line is drawn in the sand and I love him too much. I'm too grateful for what he's done for me to now stab him in the back or be that wishy-washy friend that I don't like that treats me wishy-washy. So I don't want to be that to the Lord.